Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep. A Dark Brown Dog by Stephen Crane. First published in Cosmopolitan, March 1901. Uh, Sources online, how reliable are they? Sources online uh, suggest that uh, this was written in 1893. I don't know why there would be such a big gap, other than to say um, we actually did a story that's kind of similar to this, um, and it's actually how I found this when I was looking at other crane. Um, called An Ominous Baby, which I believe was 19, uh, 1894 publication. Um, and given that they're kind of similar in length and similar in uh, what they're doing, um, uh, maybe maybe that 1893 written date is logical. We've, we've done two other uh, cranes as well. The Bride Comes to Yellow Sky. And the first one we did was called uh, A Manacled. And uh, I think I think we can start to come to some conclusions about this uh, Crane fellow. Um, he's a good writer, and uh, he loves color, and he is fearless in a way that makes me fearful, because he he's not afraid to show cruelty um, and horror. Um, but there's beauty in the horror and cruelty that he shows. I agree with that. Very much. I do ask, though, um, why does that make you fearful rather than, for instance, hopeful that that his fiction may sensitize people and make them act better? Uh, I I actually have a note about that. <laughs> um, there is this Maybe theory. Maybe we should save it. Yeah. There. Well, there's this theory. Um, I'll just mention it. Um, that fiction uh, can generate or enhance uh empathy and i want that to be true um i think there's probably some studies that show that it is true but um i'm also very skeptical and and i think the mirror that he shows us reality in is a a very scary mirror i don't like looking in and seeing the things that are in that mirror and it isn't to say that um everything in the world is horrible (laughs) but it is to say that certainly a lot of the things we choose not to look at are and because he's not just giving us um pablum to uh distract ourselves um that's what i mean by it, it can be um it can be scary to see what what somebody who's a little bit more fearless than most um is willing to show you i hope you'll raise that question that that observation again later in our discussion after we've we've read it because I I have some thoughts about that that mm-hmm. uh, but they would be more useful in the nearer context of the story maybe we should just hear it please this is published as you say in 1901 perhaps written eight years earlier a dark brown dog. A child was standing on a street corner. He leaned with one shoulder against a high board fence and swayed the other to and fro, the while kicking carelessly at the gravel. Sunshine beat upon the cobbles, 
and a lazy summer wind raised yellow dust, which trailed in clouds down the avenue. Clattering trucks moved with indistinctness through it. The child stood dreamily gazing. After a time, a little dark brown dog came trotting with an intent air down the sidewalk. A short rope was dragging from his neck. Occasionally, he trod upon the end of it and stumbled. He stopped opposite the child, and the two regarded each other. The dog hesitated for a moment, but presently he made some little advances with his tail. The child put out his hand and called him. In an apologetic manner, the dog came close, and the two had an interchange of friendly pattings and waggles. The dog became more enthusiastic with each moment of the interview, until with his gleeful caperings he threatened to overturn the child, whereupon the child lifted his hand and struck the dog a blow upon the head. This thing seemed to overpower and astonish the little dark brown dog and wounded him to the heart. He sank down in despair at the child's feet. When the blow was repeated, together with an admonition in childish sentences, he turned upon his back and held his paws in a peculiar manner. At the same time, with his ears and his eyes, he offered a small prayer to the child. He looked so comical on his back and holding his paws peculiarly that the child was greatly amused and gave him little taps repeatedly to keep him so. But the little dark brown dog took this chastisement in the most serious way and no doubt considered that he had committed some grave crime, for he wriggled contritely and showed his repentance in every way that was in his power. He pleaded with the child and petitioned him and offered more prayers at last the child grew weary of this amusement and turned toward home the dog was praying at the time he lay on his back and turned his eyes upon the retreating form presently he struggled to his feet and started after the child the latter wandered in a perfunctory way toward his home stopping at times to investigate various matters during one of these pauses he discovered the little dark brown dog who was following him with the air of a footpad. The child beat his pursuer with a small stick he had found. The dog lay down and prayed until the child had finished and resumed his journey. Then he scrambled erect and took up the pursuit again. On the way to his home, the child turned many times and beat the dog, proclaiming with childish gestures that he held him in contempt as an unimportant dog with no value save for a moment. For being this quality of animal, the dog apologized and eloquently expressed regret, but he continued stealthily to follow the child. His manner grew so very guilty that he slunk like an assassin. When the child reached his doorstep, the dog was industriously ambling a few yards in the rear. He became so agitated with shame when he again confronted the child that he forgot the dragging rope. He tripped upon it and fell forward. The child sat down on the step, and the two had another interview. During it, the dog greatly exerted himself to please the child. He performed a few gambles of such abandon that the child suddenly saw him to be a valuable thing. He made a swift, avaricious charge and seized the rope. He dragged his captive into a hall and up many long stairways in a dark tenement. The dog made willing efforts, but he could not hobble very skillfully up the stairs because he was very small and soft. And at last, the pace of the engrossed child grew so energetic that the dog became panic-stricken. In his mind, he was being dragged toward a grim unknown. His eyes grew wild with the terror of it. He began to wiggle his head frantically and to brace his legs. The child redoubled his exertions. 
they had a little battle on the stairs. The child was victorious because he was completely absorbed in his purpose and because the dog was very small. He dragged his acquirement to the door of his home and finally with triumph across the threshold. No one was in. The child sat down on the floor and made overtures to the dog. These the dog instantly accepted. He beamed with affection upon his new friend. In a short time, they were firm and abiding comrades. When the child's family appeared, they made a great row. The dog was examined and commented upon and called names. Scorn was leveled at him from all eyes so that he became so much embarrassed and dropped like a scorched plant. But the child went sturdily to the center of the floor and at the top of his voice championed the dog. It happened that he was roaring protestations with his arms clasped about the dog's neck when the father of the family came in from work. The parent demanded to know what the blazes they were making the kid howl for. It was explained in many words that the infernal kid wanted to introduce a disreputable dog into the family. A family council was held. On this depended the dog's fate, but he in no way heeded being busily engaged in chewing the end of the child's dress. The affair was quickly ended. The father of the family, it appears, was in a particularly savage temper that evening, and when he perceived that it would amaze and anger everybody if such a dog were allowed to remain, he decided that it should be so. The child, crying softly, took his friend off to a retired part of the room to hobnob with him, while the father quelled a fierce rebellion of his wife. So it came to pass that the dog was a member of the household. He and the child were associated together at all times, save when the child slept. The child became a guardian and a friend. If the large folk kicked the dog and threw things at him, the child made loud and violent objections. Once when the child had run, protesting loudly with tears raining down his face and his arms outstretched to protect his friend, he had been struck in the head with a very large saucepan from the hand of his father, enraged at some seeming lack of courtesy in the dog. Ever after, the family were careful how they threw things at the dog. Moreover, the latter grew very skillful in avoiding missiles and feet. In a small room containing a stove, a table, a bureau, and some chairs, he would display strategic ability of a high order dodging, fainting, and scuttling about among the furniture. He could force three or four people armed with brooms, sticks, and handfuls of coal to use all their ingenuity to get in a blow. And even when they did, it was seldom that they could do him a serious injury or leave any imprint. But when the child was present, these scenes did not occur. It came to be recognized that if the dog was molested, the child would burst into sobs, and as the child, when started, was very riotous and, and practically unquenchable, the dog had therein a safeguard. However... The child could not always be near. At night, when he was asleep, his dark brown friend would rise from some black corner, a wild, wailful cry, a song of infinite loneliness and despair that would go shuddering and sobbing among the buildings of the block and cause people to swear. At these times, the singer would often be chased all over the kitchen and hit with a great variety of articles. Sometimes, too, the child himself used to beat the dog, although it is not known that he ever had what could be truly called a just cause. 
The dog always accepted these thrashings with an air of admitted guilt. He was too much of a dog to try to look to be a martyr or to plot revenge. He received the blows with deep humility, and furthermore, he forgave his friend the moment the child had finished and was ready to caress the child's hand with his little red tongue. When misfortune came upon the child and his troubles overwhelmed him, he would often crawl under the table and lay his small distressed head on the dog's back. The dog was ever sympathetic. It is not to be supposed that at such times he took occasion to refer to the unjust beatings his friend, when provoked, had administered to him. He did not achieve any notable degree of intimacy with the other members of the family. He had no confidence in them, and the fear that he would express at their casual approach often exasperated them exceedingly. They used to gain a certain satisfaction in underfeeding him. But finally, his friend the child grew to watch the matter with some care, and when he forgot, the dog was often successful in secret for himself. So, the dog prospered. He developed a large bark which came wondrously from such a small rug of a dog. He ceased to howl persistently at night. Sometimes, indeed, in his sleep, he would utter little yells as from pain. But that occurred, no doubt, when in his dreams he encountered huge flaming dogs who threatened him directly. His devotion to the child grew until it was a sublime thing. He wagged at his approach. He sank down in despair at his departure. He could detect the sound of the child's step among all the noises of the neighborhood. It was like a calling voice to him. The scene of their companionship was a kingdom governed by this terrible potentate, the child. But neither criticism nor rebellion ever lived for an instant in the heart of the one subject. Down in the mystic, hidden fields of his little dog soul bloomed flowers of love and fidelity and perfect faith. The child was in the habit of going on many expeditions to observe strange things in the vicinity. On these occasions, his friend usually jogged aimfully along behind. Perhaps, though, he went ahead. This necessitated his turning around every quarter minute to make sure the child was coming. He was filled with a large idea of the importance of these journeys. He would carry himself with such an air. He was proud to be the retainer of so great a monarch. One day, however, the father of the family got quite exceptionally drunk. He came home and held carnival with the cooking utensils, the furniture, and his wife. He was in the midst of this recreation when the child, followed by the dark brown dog, entered the room. They were returning from their voyages. The child's practiced eye instantly noted his father's state. He dived under the table where experience had taught him was a rather safe place. The dog, lacking skill in such matters, was, of course, unaware of true condition of affairs. He looked with interested eyes at his friend's sudden dive. He interpreted to mean joyous gamble. He started to patter across the floor to join him. He was the picture of a little dark brown dog en route to a friend. The head of the family saw him at this moment. He gave a huge howl of joy and knocked the dog down with a heavy coffee pot. The dog, yelling in supreme astonishment and fear, writhed to his feet and ran for cover. The man kicked out with a ponderous foot. It causes the dog to swerve as if caught in a tide. A second blow of the coffee pot laid him upon the floor. 
Here the child, uttering loud cries, came valiantly forth like a knight. The father of the family paid no attention to these calls of the child, but advanced with glee upon the dog. Upon being knocked down twice in swift succession, the latter apparently gave up all hope of escape. He rolled over on his back and held his paws in a peculiar manner. At the same time, with his eyes and his ears, he offered up a small prayer. But the father was in a mood for having fun. And it occurred to him that it would be a fine thing to throw the dog out of the window. So he reached down and grabbed the animal by a leg, lifted him, squirming up. He swung him two or three times hilariously about his head and then flung him with great accuracy through the window. The soaring dog created a surprise in the block. A woman watering plants in an opposite window gave an involuntary shout and dropped a flower pot. A man in another window leaned perilously out to watch the flight of the dog. A woman who had been hanging out clothes in a yard began to caper wildly. Her mouth was filled with clothespins, but her arms gave vent to a sort of exclamation. In appearance, she was like a gagged prisoner. Children ran whooping. The dark brown body crashed in a heap on the roof of a shed five stories below. From thence it rolled to the pavement of an alleyway. The child in the room far above burst into a long dirge-like cry and toddled hastily out of the room. It took him a long time to reach the alley because his size compelled him to go downstairs backward, one step at a time, and holding with both hands to the step above. When they came for him later, they found him seated by the body of his dark brown friend wow difficult yeah. difficult story uh. so um this is one of those uh stories where um they use it to teach uh foreign language uh people english so if you go on the internet and type in a dark brown dog, you get like 10,000 professors from India and China and Myanmar all talking about this story in both English and in their native languages and, and telling what the allegory is. But um, before we get to what the allegory is or maybe is not, but I think probably is, um, I just want to say on a, on a, non-allegorical level uh which i think is there as well um it's just uh, this story is horrible and you know it's <laughs> i think you mean the content is oh my god right because it's real mm. yeah it's real right uh, and um crane is so good at telling us how to read it subversively right when he says um when he says uh, a disreputable dog, <laughs> dogs don't have much of in the terms of reputation. I mean, I guess they could, but just he he does that over and over again, where um, he'll tell us how we can't trust these judgments. Right. Indeed. It, it's like um, an unimportant dog. <laughs> 
Yes. It's funny, right? You're the little the little kid who, in the uh, wonderful illustrations that go along with this original publication, is dressed in a dress. Um, <laughs> we can just picture him pointing at the dog, saying to the dog, "You're unimportant," right? And that's I, ridiculous. I, I, well, I, but it's also something that his father would have said to him when he's in one of these rages. I think I think in fact uh, you're right. What we're getting is not what the little boy would have, what the child would have said. We're getting what is beginning to be learned by the child from his father. Mm-hmm. So that when we say when the narrator tells us that the um, dog uh, has the posture of a footpad mm. or is slinking along like, like an, an assassin, assassin. yeah, I, yeah, I, I think that can't be looking at the dog through the child's eyes, it is what the father would have seen in this dog had he been there. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the crucial aspects of this story is that we recognize that this child is learning to behave as he does from his father. Mm Um, as you say, Crane teaches us how to read this subversively on the very first page. Mm-hmm. When the when the child uh, abuses the dog, the dog lies down and brings up his paws in a peculiar manner. Mm-hmm. And it says, and at the same time, with his eyes and ears, he offered up a small prayer to the child. Mm-hmm. On the last page, he rolled over on his back and held up his paws in a peculiar manner, this time to the father. At the same time, with his eyes and his ears, he offered up a small prayer. The dog is the constant. Mm-hmm. The thing that changes is growing from being a child to an adult, or to put it another way, learning to be that kind of an adult mm-hmm. as you're a child. Um, this story is a real condemnation of, uh, of what it is to be these kinds of people. What I think we can also understand is that crane i'm I'm trying to i'm underscoring your sense of how he teaches us to read when we first see this it's a child yep right then we realize that he's wearing a dress so it could be any child up to about the age of five Mm -hmm. then we realize that he's a child in a city in a tenement Mm Then, when he goes down the stairs, we realize he's a child who must be under, certainly under three, maybe under two. Mm. And without a word being said, we have to think, my God, this kid is absolutely unattended, unsupervised at this ridiculously young age. What an environment he is in. And so... We understand why this kid is so cruel. He's made cruel by his environment and his family. But then we also kind of have to ask, did the father become cruel because the only fun he could have would be to to be cruel? Mm. One of the, and one that, of the, I think, may bring us to the allegory that's so well known. Yeah, uh, one of the things we get is that there's a – the reason – Hey, there's perversity all over this story, right? So when when the child brings the dog home, there's a row. Um, and then the father comes home, and this is the person who ends up killing the dog. 
And yet, the father, for some reason, thinks that the dog should stay a member of the family. And he does it, we can infer, out of a sense of perversity. That this is something that maybe he hasn't thought it through, but it's it's something that he can do to, like, jab at his wife, to jab at his kid, to jab at the other family who are there but never mentioned, right? You can't have a row with uh, just the, <laughs> the, the two. It, it's all over. And so when he comes home drunk uh, and, you know... There's a fight going on, and the kid sees what's going on and dives under the table, and the dog thinks this is playtime. Uh, well, for the man, it is playtime, right? It, he, he's making carnival with the, with the furniture and the uh, kitchen implements, and then he makes carnival with the dog. No, it says, and wife. Oh, uh, yeah, uh, of course. Uh, beating your wife goes right along with, you know... Killing your child's pet. Um, But, yeah, let's talk about the allegory because uh, I think it's there. I think it's real. uh, But I also think uh, we can over, like, I've seen over readings of it and I'm not happy with it. I've made my own on the side. I'm not happy with that. Um, But the significance of the dog having a a lead, uh, a rope, around its neck when it first encounters the child and the fact that it's not just a dog it's a dark brown dog leads us to conclude that this is about racism a very specific and i made note peculiar institution um Mm -hmm. which is a horrible way of um hiding the reality and 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 this is the story about the aftermath of a peculiar institution and I, well, I, I, I'm hesitant to, you know, start analogizing who all these characters are. The mother, the father, the child, and, of course, the dog. So I'll let you uh, have at it if you, <laughs> if you want, but it's definitely there. I think that uh, the, the easiest way to unpack this, um, it may be too easy. I don't think we should uh, simplify the story. Um, is to see it as reference to Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. So, you know, after st- starting, you know, 1873-ish, um, we get um, a spate of laws that are designed to reimpose the control of uh, black Americans by white Americans. And that rope around the neck of the little dark brown dog um, shows us that they are, it's always possible to grab them. They have that. They can't, you know, if the, if the child liked the dog, he could have taken the rope off him, mm-hmm. right? But no, he, he uses, and his first impulse is, in fact, to beat him. Um, but then the dog you know, looks amusing enough or happy enough. It provides him with things that he wants, mm-hmm. and so he doesn't pull on the rope, but the rope never goes away, right? As far as we can tell, the rope is always there. And ultimately, being the plaything of even the poorest whites um, becomes fatal. Uh, if Once you get that allegory in your mind, um, I think as you read through the story, it's easy to see 
everything is allegorical. Yes. Oh, th- right. This this is like uh, giving too little money. Uh, you know, so you're gonna right. They they had joy in underfeeding him. Right. Right. It's like the wages are too small. Uh, because now we're in a big city. We're not in the rural South. Now we're in a big city. We may be in New York, say. We've got the cobbled streets. We have the tenement buildings. Right? So we are among the poor, but there's somebody even more underprivileged, mm-hmm. and they play with that. Now, if, however, we can recognize that this, this anti-Jim Crow allegory also examines the social conditions that allow such cruelty to be translated from the South, where the peculiar institution had been law before the Civil War, to the North, where by the eve of the Civil War, it was in fact illegal. How that same cruelty could be transported from the South, that peculiar institution, affect the activities in the North, that becomes a critique of capitalism. That becomes a critique of poverty. The The family of this little child is also underfed. The family of this child suffers from sexism. The tr- family of this child has enough money for alcohol, but not enough money to make sure that somebody is always available to watch the child. Mm-hmm. There is... A strong critique here, and because of the repetition of words, as we come through the story to learn more about the situation and how young the child is, um, we come to recognize that there is an imprinting going on. There is a, a, a an education of the child. And for me, the last line is the most hopeful and the most important and the most terrifying. When they came for him later, Mm. can you imagine that they just waited a while? I mean, the kid leaves the house. You've just thrown his... I mean, what inattention to the child. When they came for him later, they found him seated by the body of his dark brown friend. Yeah. Which tells me, this this is a friend. But this little child doesn't really understand what it means to be friends if he could think that you could abuse another creature so. But he is so young at this point, having just come down the stairs backwards, that I think what the story is offering us is the notion that in the right environment, human beings crave friendship. They are sympathetic. They do have love, Mm. and that's being warped out of them by the conditions in which they live, by slavery, by Jim Crow, by poverty, by alcoholism, Mm -hmm. by sexism, by the overcrowded conditions brought on by capitalism. This is a powerful story that reminds us at the very end The seeds are still there. We should be able to do something about this. I don't think this story is meant to make us despair. So when you said you found it fearful, what I was wondering is, is it possible to also find it just a little bit hopeful? Down in the mystic hidden fields of my little dog soul, Eric, 
there bloom flowers of love and fidelity and perfect faith, but I see a lot of a lot of dogs getting thrown out of windows in the world. Well, thank goodness that the that some of the people who see this have the skill to fix our attention on what's clearly important because conditions like this make it necessary that there be always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.com.